everybody. Welcome back to the Matt Report Podcast. Today, Jordan Gall of CartHook.com joins us. And you might follow Jordan on his own podcast, The Bootstrap Web, when he co-hosts with Brian Castle. And I know I've been following along the story ever since he became a co-host over there. But uh, five years has gone by pretty fast. And I sort of have forgotten like the three major pivot points that he's made with that company. And we're going to talk about that in a com- condensed 45 minutes today. We're going to take five years of his pain and uh, wins and success and failures. And we're going to talk about those three major pivot points that he made. One, from, of course, starting the company, then two, realizing like, hey, this this product isn't going gonna, isn't gonna to sustain this. They pivoted again and built a second product. And then the third most recent pivot is letting loose of that original product and moving up market with the second product that they that they bet the whole house on. And of course, things are rock and rolling for Jordan. It's it's definitely one of those uh, successful stories that we like to uh, admire. And of course, it didn't come overnight. It might seem like it came overnight, but it's been five years of the roller coaster ride uh, that Jordan has been on. So I was really pleased to have today's conversation and pull out those major milestones to help us learn when we cut loose these these products. That aren't really going to help us? Uh, and how do we introduce a second product or just pivot the company entirely and, and focus on something else? Uh, and it's it's good, good stuff uh, that we're learning today. So I really appreciate Jordan taking the time to do it. I hope you do too. Say thanks to him on Twitter, Jordan Gall, and uh, check out Carthook at carthook.com. All right, let's get into today's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Matt Report Podcast. I have finally got my good friend i like to call him the clark kent of the SaaS industry <laughs> jordan, the jordan welcome to the pro- <laughs> i mean you got you got the chiseled chin i mean you just got the you've got the bravado of a superman jordan welcome to the program Woo! let's do it <laughs> uh matt thanks very much for having me on and for starting out with a compliment making me feel good and relaxed yes uh, yeah I, I i love your podcast i love the energy i feel like i should have like a beer but it is 11 30 in the morning on a thursday so i, I don't have a beer um, but I'm excited to talk today, talk biz, talk a little bit about the journey, and kind of share whatever uh, lessons I've got that I have earned through pain and suffering. Sure, <laughs> that is that's an important piece, right? The the pain and suffering is something that doesn't. Uh, well, I mean, it's getting talked about a whole heck of a lot more now. There's a lot of people yeah. talking about like sort of like mental health and and stress of a founder. You know, the other day somebody uh, direct messaged me on Twitter because I've been I've been selling my logo on hats, right? And this guy sends me a direct message and he says, "How the heck have you been able to sell hats? Get people to." take a selfie of them and then retweet it on Twitter and just get all this buzz. I'm like, I don't know, man, about seven years of podcasting, <laughs> you know, building a brand and getting people to trust me. Um, yep. But I want to talk about it from from your perspective. Uh, you know, when you started Cardhook, what, what was the pain point? What was the jumping off point to say, this is the business that I want to build? Sure. So the the way... I try to be very honest about it is that I started Cardhook quite cynically. Um, I had just come out of a business uh, that sold physical products online. So I was an e-commerce merchant and we had a relatively successful run at it. Uh, The business got started and took off pretty quickly and we sold it like 14 months later. Now, sounds cool. In reality, the reason we sold it so early is because I didn't like the direction it was going in. Uh, we were selling physical products that you could find elsewhere. So they weren't our own products. And in an Amazon world, that was just all heading in the wrong direction. You really had to get to the scale of like Wayfair or it was not going to work out. And the biggest problem when we looked back, uh, we'd think, okay, I just worked really hard for a year. And we did pretty well. We did, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars in revenue in the first year. It was like this cool thing we we learned and were moderately successful at. However, if we didn't pump another twenty five grand into advertising the next month, our revenue would drop, you know, tremendously. And that felt like being on a treadmill and just increasing the speed regularly, and that that that's not really any fun. And so after selling the e-commerce business, I said to myself, I want recurring revenue. Whatever I do next has to have recurring revenue. And software is the thing these days that provides recurring revenue. Therefore, I'm starting a software company. So that's that's really... 
it wasn't even like, you know, at the time, because Carhartt launched roughly, what, 2014, right? Right around that mark, right in that year. Yep, yep. And, and um, 2014, officially incorporated 2015. Yep. And, it, and it wasn't really, you didn't even notice like in that e-commerce business going, boy, I really wish we could, you know, recover abandoned carts. Like it wasn't even that that clicked at well, that time. Well, it was. It, it, okay. it was. So, so when I decided, okay, I'm going to start a software company. I wanted to stay in the e-commerce world because that's what I was familiar with. That's what I could add value. That's what I could write content, just familiarity. Uh, and the truth is I, I, I enjoyed it. I, I learned how to optimize. I learned how to convince total strangers that come to your site uh, that they should buy something from you. And that, that was a fun skill to learn for someone who really hadn't grown up in business on, online. Um, and so I want to stay in the e-commerce world. And so what I did was I looked at the software that we used as a merchant. And I tried to find a good ratio of uh, low quality product that provided a lot of value. So basically crappy product that we kept paying for. And we settled on our recovery app, the abandoned card app that's, that sent out an email campaign to anyone who started the checkout process but didn't finish it. Because it was a pile of junk in terms of software. But it made us like two to three thousand bucks every month, and so every month when we looked at our finances, we would pay a hundred bucks a month for this product, and it made us three grand, and therefore we would simply never cancel. And I said, "Well, I, I want to be that guy on the other end of this transaction, and what if I just built a better version of this exact same product and got myself into the same spot?" And that's where Carthook started. So the first product that we launched as Carthook was an abandoned card app. That's why it's called Cart hook because that kind of makes sense for an abandoned card app even though it doesn't really make as much sense for our current product but we'll, we'll get there in the combo correct me if i'm wrong and, and the way i view this is like three you know again let me let me uh, also preface this as the professional podcaster that i am is that jordan is also the co-host of the bootstrap web <laughs> podcast uh you know that he hosts with brian castle and i've been obviously following his journey uh uh, when he became co-host with with Brian, and you can kind of go back into the archives to to hear Jordan talk about sort of growing this business and those particular acute pain points that he's gone through at those times. But I look at yeah. this as like three major milestones, and uh, you had, of course, the very launch of Cart Hook. Like, hey, we're going to do abandoned carts, this email automation string. We're going to recover, uh, and we're going to take a little bit of percentage of your revenue plus charge you a flat fee. And then somewhere along the lines, maybe a, a few years later after that, you said, well, okay. Now we're going to have two products. We're going to have recovery, uh, the same thing. We're going to have abandoned cart recovery, and we're going to do these funnel pages. And then now it is what looks like that as a product matures in its third chapter, if you will, it is just a core focus on uh, you know creating those unique funnel pages for customers. Do I have that roughly right? Yeah, mo mostly right. But uh, yeah, the, with some the nuances. Initial in, with some nuances in the mix, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and that's kind of what we can get into and, and why we made these certain decisions. And, you know, building a second product in a four-person company that didn't really raise much money and wasn't profitable, that was that was a big risk. Um, and we can talk about why we did that and how we went from one product to two. And then we actually shut down our recovery product recently. So we, uh, we kind of stair-stepped from one product to two, and then we left the initial product behind because it no longer made sense to focus on both. Yeah. So, you know, let, let's, let's fast track that. I, I'm pulling on an Andrew Warner and I'm looking at the, uh, the archive.org page of, of cart hook back in, uh, what's, <laughs> oh, what's, geez. what's labeled as September 21st, 2014, when Jordan oh, had wow. the bravado to put his email address right in the footer, uh, of the <laughs> yes. website, uh, your, <laughs> your entry level point five years ago was 99 bucks a month with 10% yep. uh, of recovered revenue. And if we look at cart hook proper today, your minimum price is 500 bucks a month. And that was your highest price, you know, five years ago. Um, and one thing that I've always found interesting when I listen to you is as a non-technical developer, like how you've led the company, right? How you've led like big feature products, big changes in the company. Um, and I really found that just inspiring as a non-technical person like my, you know, from my, like myself, like how you made these decisions. So how did you make that decision, that middle milestone, right? When you said, okay, now we're going to launch these pages, these funnels. What was that like uh, in that four person company? So, so I want to answer that by actually going 
backwards because the biggest challenge between saying I'd like to start a software company and actually running a software company was that I do not know how to software. And that that part was much harder than the the transition from one product to two. You know, we had this core team and we believed in what we were doing. And so convincing people that you already work with to trust you that we should build the second product, uh, and here's kind of the proof, that was a lot easier than initially finding an engineer to spend their time building the initial recovery product when I couldn't pay them. So that that was the, the hardest part. So I saw my job there as the non-technical founder uh, as one of convincing a high quality engineer that their time was worth it because I had, I had enough market insight and selling ability that what they were going to build wouldn't just kind of wither and, and die that I, if once you pass me that baton, I will do something with it. And so, right. There was some luck involved there uh, as always uh, and I bumped into a family friend at a laundromat in San Francisco when my wife and I lived there for like three months. We were checking out different cities to move to and then had lunches with him. And it turns out that he was uh, really interested in getting more to the business side of things and wanted to build something that was like a real software product as opposed to the larger companies that he was working at. And so was able, I was able to show him my expertise in e-commerce and all the research I had done and all the people that I was talking to actively before the product was even built. And so that reduced the risk of him wasting his time as close to zero as possible. And that's how I initially found someone who was quite good at, at, at the technical side to build a product to begin with that I could start selling. And that, so yeah. that, that's so how the you whole almost, journey you almost started. Did like the- you almost did the, the just the pitch to to him, right? It's just like you know, if you were standing in a room of investors, you'd probably be saying the same thing, right? You'd be like, "Here's how we're going to do it. Here's how we're going to go to market," and that's what convinced this person. Yes, and and it, it has worked out quite well for for him. That that person actually <laughs> wa, uh, was my right original co-founder, and I gave him a chunk of the company, and then he ended up getting his dream job like like ten months in. Uh, the company was doing maybe two or 3000 bucks a month. So I basically insisted that he take the opportunity. It was like a dream job. It was amazing. So he took it. And then that's when I found another, a new co-founder. And that's when we raised a little bit of money from friends and family and people like Rob Walling that were kind of really interested in this fund strapping. How do you raise just enough money to get to profitability, but don't get yourself onto the VC treadmill. And that's how, that's how the company started. So that, that took us into the first phase of, okay, Jordan, you got the baton, now turn it into a company. And that was, you know, that was probably the hardest period of the entire thing. Just going from zero to 10K a month in MRR takes a lot longer than you want it to take. Really frustrating, just a challenging like 12 to 18 months there. What was the thing? Like, so a lot of people think like, okay, uh, well, I built it and they will come. And I know that's like a cliche thing, but people, yep. what happens is they'll, they'll, they, you just spend so much time thinking about your baby, building out the software, like literally convincing yourself and your team, like this is the best product ever. Like you have to think like that. And then you, you're like, oh, obviously people are going to sign up and buy this. <laughs> like it's not going to, this is going to be the easiest thing ever. Um, but what was that? What was that like? When did it click that you actually found your stride to get to that ten thousand? Was it like changing call to actions on the homepage? Was it just resetting your own mental thinking about how you pitch the product? Was there one thing that was just like, aha, this is what really excelled us to the ten k once you or beyond ten k once you once you hit it? Yeah, yeah, there there was, and for us for us it was integration partnerships. Um, so the build it and they will come. Uh, we're going to touch on that in a little bit because with the second product, that is very literally what happened. We just built it and they all came, which is a very strange, it's a very strange experience because it, it's not supposed to happen. Um, but the first, the first product wasn't anything like that. The truth is the intention was not to do that. The intention was this market already exists. There are five or six different options. We're going to offer an option that has a few different features and a different angle on things. And then it's going to be a sales and marketing play and not a unique product innovation play. And, and so 
I am generally bad at like a lot of things, but I'm really good at a few things. One of the things I'm good at is establishing relationships with people. And so I didn't do traditional marketing and webinars and advertising. Uh, my strength was in establishing relationships. And so what I did with the card abandonment app is, right, if you think about what this app does, is it attaches to an existing e-commerce platform and then puts a piece of JavaScript out on the checkout page. And as someone is typing in the email address on that blur event uh, of the uh, shopper going from one field to the next, we then capture the email address on that event. So that's, that is the extent of technical speak that I will get into. Um, right? Blur event? Come on, it's legit. So, 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 right, so it requires an e-commerce platform to do an integration with. And so what I found was that when we did an integration and then didn't tell anyone, it didn't do much. Then we had to do sales, which I'll, I'll get to next. But when I made uh, – established a real relationship with people at the platform and then we built an integration and then the platform told all of their users about us that worked and so when i found that that worked i said all right this is a matching of my uh, it, my ability in relationships with the marketing and this is what i should kind of keep doubling down on and so we did that until we found like an ideal version of that and we found it with a platform called CrateJoy. So CrateJoy was blowing up at the time. They were an e-commerce platform specifically for subscription boxes. And at the time it was like all the rage, right? Right now subscriptions are like a part of commerce and, and uh, Dollar Shave Club kind of blew that up completely. And now everyone wants to get people on subscription and so on. But back then it was just in its infancy and, and CrateJoy was reaping the rewards of it becoming a hot trend. So we went to them and we said, here's what we want to do. Not only do we want to build an integration, what we want to do is we want you to build us into your admin. And they said, well, that sounds good because all of our customers want what you offer and we have no interest in building it right now. And so we did an integration, but because we established a strong relationship with them, they took our integration and actually put it directly into their admin. And so it looked like it was a feature. It was a feature like brought to you by Carthook, but everyone saw it. It was, it was visible to everyone. And that created a flywheel. That created a, as, as long as CrateJoy is growing and they're getting new signups, and they were, then all of those new signups and the existing ones would see our product there also. And that turned into uh, right, and a relationship and an integration that then turned into a constant stream of free trials on an ongoing basis without any additional work being done. So that was like the highest version of an integration partnership. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, that's the thing, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of missed opportunity and, and it really only, you know, it's hard to say, like everyone looks like, well, how do I just create a successful business? And and half the time you just have to keep falling on your face to figure it out, right? Like you have to figure out like where you're failing in order to find these new avenues of opportunity. And, and like B2B, you know, I would consider that like a B2B scenario where you, like maybe you've yep. built a piece of software and you're only going to sell it to other businesses to integrate versus thinking of the consumer, like I'm going to go to shop owners, right? And, and that takes a whole different tact. And I think that if people could find other opportunities in growing their their product in a version one, you know, exactly like you did. Like you you brought it to somebody who could integrate it and it's just a bigger pond for you to dive into, right? It's one customer with a thousand other customers for you to test things out on. Yes. Yes. I, I just got off a call before this podcast where I was doing some like mentoring for uh, with someone that I respect and want to contribute to their success. And I said the same thing. I said, anytime you can dip into an existing audience, like that's what you need in the early stages because that gives you leverage without you having to build up that audience over time yourself. And so this, the integration partnership was just dipping into an existing audience of people that were exactly the type of person you want to get your offer in front of. And so, so we did some sales. I did some cold email outreach uh, then I systemized that with like a whole thing between like getting lists from built with and sending it to the Philippines for qualification and then uh, loading it up into sales. Oh, what was it called? 
I forget what the software was called that sent it uh, cold emails automatically over time. And that worked, but it only worked for a little while. That helped us go from like zero to 5K. But in the meantime, while that was running and I was doing the demos, I was establishing these types of relationships. And the relationships really the thing that helped us go from five to 10 and then beyond. And without that flywheel, we could never have built the second product. Because when we had... Uh, when we came across the idea for the second product, we were getting a constant stream of new customers without doing any work. And so for the six to nine months that it took us to build the second product, we were actually growing the whole time. And, and that's what allowed us to continue the revenue coming in while we, while we focused on something else. So the original product stagnated, but it was like a deliberate bet of, okay, we're going to let this stagnate, but it's going to continue to... Uh, bring in revenue and actually bring in additional revenue with these growth channels that were kind of running on their own. And that's what gave us the breathing room to focus on the second product. And that's sort of like, again, like in the akin to the WordPress world, there's a lot of uh, heck, you know, I'm guilty. Uh, there's agencies running and you're doing client work, you know, like, I just got to get out of this client game someday. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm sick of trying to build yeah, the websites. Tough. I want to build a product. Uh, but that is funding, let's say, the research and development for, you know, somebody's next plugin idea or even SaaS based business idea. And that's sort of what was happening there. How did you pitch the the second product to the team to say like, oh my God, we're going to, you know, pull the emergency brake and drift into a new product idea. Uh, what was that like? Because as a non-technical founder, uh, I know what it's like to bring this to like a technical team, be like, I got this crazy idea, guys, we're going to build it now. And they're looking at you, they're looking at you going, yeah, like, right. Seriously. We're going to support all this other <laughs> stuff that we're doing. So how did that come up? Like, how did that trigger in your mind and, and how did you pitch it? So, it was similar to the beginning point of the company in convincing an engineer to build a product to begin with, because it required uh, it required me to make an argument that was convincing, and so that I combined two things there, which was my expertise in e-commerce from my experience uh, running that business, and. Then I combine that with market research of like, look at this. I'm, I'm seeing this being talked about actively in this Facebook thread and this Facebook group and this twi you know, Twitter thread. And people are asking, why doesn't this exist? I need this. This is my pain. And, and, and no one is solving it. And so right, if we break down those two angles to be more specific, when I ran the e-commerce business, I did so with my two brothers. And each of us were responsible for a different uh, pieces of the business. My older brother was responsible for getting traffic to the site. I was responsible for converting that traffic. And my younger brother was responsible for everything that happened after the sale. So shipping, inventory, fulfillment, and, and so on. And so that had me uh, educating myself on conversion optimization. And I spent a lot of time optimizing our checkout process, right? That's where there's a lot of leverage in improving the conversion rate of the number of people that actually make a purchase once they've reached the checkout page. And so I, that was like, like, again, I'm not very good at everything, but one of the few things that I'm genuinely qualified for is optimizing a checkout page. And so when we were doing integrations for the cart abandonment app, when we went to do an integration with Shopify, which was really catching a lot of energy at that time and was starting to blow up, what I noticed was that the Shopify checkout page, you couldn't optimize at all. It was three pages instead of one, and you couldn't even add a trust symbol. You couldn't even add like a VeriSign, Visa, nothing. You couldn't change the colors. And that's when it dawned on me, wait a second. This is the hottest e-commerce platform. It's going to really grow over the next few years, and no one can optimize their checkout. And I wonder if there's demand for that. And so I, I knew, okay, that's a, that's a decent idea. Let me go see if I'm on the right track. And so I went deep into Facebook groups, into the Shopify Facebook groups and the ClickFunnels Facebook groups. And what I, what I saw was an enormous amount of pain around the checkout. Uh, people using ClickFunnels, which was also taking off at that time, had the ability to customize their checkout process and add post-purchase upsells and really enable a lot of strategies at the point of checkout. And then they had a lot of pain selling physical products on ClickFunnels because it wasn't made for physical products. It was made for selling digital products like courses and consulting. 
And so a lot of people would then move from ClickFunnels to Shopify, and that's when they would bump into the limitation of the Shopify checkout and say, damn, I want to do these post-purchase upsells. I want to optimize this checkout flow, but I can't. So now I'm stuck on what is the best system for selling physical products from a point of view of inventory and shipping, fulfillment and apps, which is Shopify. But now I've lost my marketing ability that I had on ClickFunnels. And what I thought to myself was, if we create a checkout that has the functionality of ClickFunnels, but works with Shopify, that's the product the market wants. And so I- I yeah. I remember your episodes. I remember the episodes of you uncovering this mystery, right? And I remember how yeah. listening to you, how excited you were oh by like, God, so do, like rolling up your sleeves and going in and doing market research. And like, hello, everyone. Like market research is so uh, uh, readily available in front of us. Like Jordan Diddy dove into the like, Facebook groups, which is an absolute freaking gold mine, right? <laughs> For finding like where people are like struggling. And I remember you talking to Brian about it and like, I got this thing coming. I think it's going to be great. I think it's, gonna be, we're going to do it. <laughs> you know, we're going to do it because I'm the CEO, damn it. And we're going to, and yeah. that's my gut. You know, that's my gut instinct. Yes. And, and you've led Absolutely. with a lot of gut instincts, which, which I've always admired. And I think a lot of people have to, it can't always be data driven. Like what um, are the analysis of this, that kind of thing, you know? Yes. I'm when it comes to that, I'm anti-data. I think yeah, you got to go with gut and instinct and feeling and I don't, whatever, man, that's just my version of it. Some people are all about data. I I am actively anti-data when it comes to that type of a decision. And so because that's how you find the big wins, right? I mean, that's, that's like the bet you place on like on yourself. Like, yes. Yeah. All right. So, so at this point in time, I, I start to convince them. I say, guys, I'm willing to bet everything on it. We've got this flywheel going, revenues going up. Let's do this second product. And I'm convinced here are screenshots from these Facebook groups. And I really start to get them excited on, on, on the idea. And so now we move into like this next phase of the business. So we start building it. Uh, that's kind of boring to talk about. Um, and so when we go to launch it, this was the, now. This was the beginning of not the most difficult, but the most frustrating period of the company. When we launched this thing, I mean, we didn't do anything, and they all came knocking on our door. It was, it was the perfect example of what you're not supposed to do. You're right. You're supposed to start building an audience and start building excitement. And I was just like, Nah, man. <laughs> I don't even want to tell anyone else that that we're working on it. This is like the right idea. I'm a hundred percent convinced of it. I don't want anyone else to know. I was made all the classic mistakes, but the, in this case, they weren't mistakes. Were you were so you not we telling people? Were you not telling people because you were like a little embarrassed to make the pivot, or you just didn't want I, I didn't people want to know? Anyone, like, I I knew this idea was going to happen, and I, I didn't want I, I didn't want anyone else that was better positioned than we were to work on it. I didn't want them to I didn't want them to have a, a three month uh, head start because I think as soon as people heard the idea, it was so dead obviously needed, but no one was working on it. As far as I knew, someone was working on it. Turns out, um, so I just wanted to keep it quiet. And so we launched it and we had it at a hundred bucks a month and got overwhelmed. And we said, Whoa, 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 hold on. First of all, the product isn't even ready. So people are coming in and they're super excited, but it's not really working for them yet. And we're getting too, we're getting too many people. So let's slow everything down. And how are we going to slow things down? We're going to do two things. We're going to require a demo. Like you need to have a conversation with me before you can use the product. And we're going to triple the price to 300 bucks a month. We did that and the demand just stayed exactly the same, which, which was a super critical moment in, in the company. Because if we had kept it at 100 bucks a month, if everything unfolded the same way, we would have gotten into a lot more trouble. Uh, because we had a 300, it, that gave us a lot of leeway. And we made so many mistakes. So the frustrating thing about it was as an entrepreneur in like in, in any space, what you hope is that your product gets a good reception. But what you really should expect is that you're going to have to make it happen. You're going to have to go sell it. You're going to have to go tell people about it. You're going to have to get out in front of people. This was the opposite. This was the fantasy scenario. You launch something, you barely even talk about it, and then everyone wants it. 
problem was the technology just wasn't there. And it is a difficult product to build. It is a checkout product, which means if anything happens at all technically, then you're killing people's conversions and then that costs them money. So any technical mistakes you make, it's not like, oh, sorry, the emails didn't go out. They went out three hours later. Instead, we apologize. It's you cost me money immediately and now I'm very upset. And that started a 12-month torture experience of just nailing what the market wanted, but the product wasn't there yet. And I just watched hundreds of thousands of dollars slip through my fingers because the product just wasn't good enough yet. And by slip through your fingers, it was churn is what I'm guessing, right? It's people oh that God. are just like, yeah, yes. like, hey, this isn't working. Like we're, we're getting too many problems. Black Friday's yes. coming. We, we can't mess around. Like we need something yes. solid. It would, right. So the experience would be, I get on a demo and people were, people were losing their minds when I showed them this on a screen share. It was the most <laughs> satisfying thing. They were like, I, they were literally yeah, saying, I cannot believe you built this. This is exactly what I imagined. So <laughs> to get that as like, right. To get that as the salesperson, I was like, not only the salesperson, but it was my idea. So I was, I was feeling right. great about myself. Yeah. And then they would go into the system and they would go through what I called a conveyor belt of torture. At which point, at, the, <laughs> at some point in the future, they would say, Jordan, I love you guys, but I have had enough torture and I must move on with my life. Hmm. And, and we watched hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, I'm, I'm talking hundreds of thousands of dollars in MRR <laughs> go right, through right. our hands. Right. And millions so, of dollars a year. Millions and millions and millions of dollars. And, right. and, and so then we get into like this next phase of the company where we said, all right, guess what we need to do? We need to do a rewrite. And, and usually that's a mistake, but we, we did not have a choice. We, we learned a bunch of lessons and we said, all right, let's rewrite the bugger. Um, and we did. And March 2018, might be March 2017. I think it's March 2018. Um, we, we launched version two. And from the day we launched version two, we took off like a goddamn rocket ship. And it was the most fun 12 months I've ever had in my career. And that was, it was so much fun. And it was, it was like, all right, guys, if this doesn't work, like <laughs> this is not going to work out. The, the company's going to run out of money. Uh, but the tech team pulled it off and they nailed did it. The and then we just, we just took off. Did the tech team, like, were they bought? I mean, I, I know obviously some of the stories, again, just listening to your podcast episodes, but was the team bought into the success of the company? Sometimes I feel like, you know, Man, if they're just if they're just showing up for like a nine to five job, they're just like, yeah, we'll we'll check it out on Monday, <laughs> you know, and see if it's working. Uh, and they're not really bought into the same vision as you. Like, did you find that a struggle, or did they all kind of just say, yeah, our product sucks. We, you know, we all want to make this better, and then they kind of all pulled through, or was it a little challenging? No, the, the, look, the core group of four, we were all in. We were like, we're going to make this thing freaking work one way or another. We're not giving up on this. We're, we're going to make this work. Uh, and, and that for, we went through a lot together through that, that two year period of the initial product and the second product idea, then, and then the torture year, all that. We really cared about each other. We didn't want to let each other down. We had a pretty special, uh, relationship among colleagues. You know, we, we were at the, all right, I love you, man. Hope you're good. You know, I'll talk to you soon phase. Like we, we were close. We were, we, we spent time together. I was flying to Slovenia regularly. Uh, ben and I, my co-founder were, uh, were super tight. Like it was, it was important that way. I think this also harkens back if I'm going to be honest, uh, you know, my, my talent is in relationships and I'm a middle child and I kind of know what people need and all that. And I, I had that same thing going with my employees, man. They knew I really cared about them. And they cared back and they were committed. So that, that, that part of it was always scary. Just the prospect of if this person comes up to me on Monday and says, Jordan, I love you, but I'm done, man. I, 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 would, I would understand. It was yeah. really difficult. So I would understand. So I always had that fear that that would happen, but, but it really hasn't. So let's set the stage now for where the product's at 
currently and like where you're at with price point, where you're at with, um, you know, selling it with controlling churn. And I'll just preface it by saying like, there's a lot of WordPress plugin companies out there that might be listening and even smaller SaaS companies where they're like, we're going to charge 10 bucks a month, you know, and we're going to retire from our day jobs. And you're like, no, nah, it's not going to happen. Like unless you had millions of people, uh, it ain't going to happen. Yeah. And we, and we see Jordan, our hero in today's episode go from, you know, charging the 90 nine bucks a month uh to yeah. some point having some free trials to now entry point is 500 and oh by the way if you're doing more than uh 250 bucks a month yeah you're an enterprise person and we're going to want to have a hand-to-hand sales you know presentation and demo so yeah how has this new positioning i mean you've refined the product it's a better product uh, but how has this new positioning on price and enterprise plan played a role in you know making the company happier and, and selling more customers? Yeah, that the the price point has always been an enormous factor in the company, and and I think I've done a relatively good job at listening to the advice of people like Patrick McKenzie who say charge more. I kind of skipped the not charging enough and then having to raise prices. I always just put the price where I actually wanted it to be. Uh, the way I've heard it put is you you price above where the product actually deserves, and then you build the product up to that. And then when you get there, you raise the price again. Uh, so that's kind of the philosophy that we've gone under. So that takes us to like this current phase of the company. So from March 2018 uh, through now, we had a pretty consistent uh, pricing. We had 300 bucks a month plus some overage. Uh, now, things were good. And the growth was great. And and the top line number is like super sexy and it's multiple millions and all that stuff. But sitting in my shoes, you, you know, you got to be very honest with yourself. Uh, you can kid everyone else, but at least with yourself, don't, don't lie. And when I looked at the math and how things were going, th- that churn number was just not leading us into the right place. And so we had, we had very high churn. We had 12 to 14% monthly churn, which is unacceptably high, but we were growing so fast that the growth was overwhelming. It. Uh, so if you, it was if just you're outpacing SAS, it, it was outpacing it. And yep, you were it was like, just outpacing hey, things. Are, and it was kind of just fooling you to a degree. You're like, Hey, things are still kind of good. I, I, I'm not scared, yes. but like I should start paying attention. Yes. And so I, I don't remember the exact formula, but if you Google uh, like maximum revenue based on churn, uh, there's a pretty simple formula that looks at your growth rate and your churn rate and your price point. Uh, you write your average revenue per user, and it tells you what what your maximum MRR can be based on those factors. At some point, the churn and the growth even out. And so while we were outpacing it temporarily, if you look down the road, it was it was going to hit a wall. And so when I started to see that, uh, I wanted to act sooner rather than later. And so what we have done over the past six months is we've changed a lot about the nature of the company, uh, both in pricing and even more importantly, in process, meaning the sales process. And so what we did on July 1st is we removed the ability to sign up with a free trial. So if you think about this position, at that point in time, we were getting about $75,000 worth of free trials every month, like 75K in potential new MRR every month. Now on the surface, that sounds, that sounds fantastic. It it is fantastic, but it was continuing to lead into the, into the high churn. So people would come in and a, a lot of people would stay and they would be a good fit for us. And then they really wouldn't churn out nearly at the same rate. But there was a large portion, a majority of those trials were not a good fit for us. Either they were too early on or technically something wasn't going to match up or their strategy was wrong or their culture was wrong and they were jerks and we didn't like to work with them. Whatever it was, it wasn't leading to the right place. And so we made the decision to shut down free trials and require not just a demo, but an application. Uh, So it's a bit of an a bit of an arrogant kind of way to do it where you're like, you need to apply to work with us. But we, we tried to make sure to soften it because it's not, it's genuinely not, you need to apply to see if you're good enough to work with us. That's not it. We just learned from our experience that this isn't for everyone. So apply and give us information and then we can figure out 
if we are a good match for you and you are a good match for us. And we do that through a demo process. So we have an application. We reject roughly 50% of the applications that come in. We literally send them an email that says, this is not a good fit for you. Here's a link to our competitor that's a better fit, which is a funny thing to do. And I've been told before that I should be an affiliate for my competitor, but I like them. <laughs> but there's there's something very weird about getting like thousands of dollars from your competitor. So I, we just have not done that. And I like the competitor. They're, they're a good company run by a good person, the whole deal. Um, so we, we are very happy to send people their way that don't make sense for us. And then we get into a demo process and that has transformed. Well, it's a new company. Uh, the, the stress inside the company, the, just the way we carry ourselves. Uh, we, we only work with people that we'd like to work with. And there's something very empowering about that. Not to me, I'm, I'm further from the front lines now. we have a team of 24. So I'm, I'm not doing support and success and, and these day to day conversations, uh, but to empower the team to say, if this person is a jerk to you, I don't care how much money they make, tell them to take a hike. Uh, and that leads to a, a healthier uh, team and happier team and just more calm inside the company. Uh, and so we took a hit in revenue to get there, but now our churn is at 5% a month. And so right, this deliberate decision to have a healthier company hurt revenue in the short term, but it has set us up for much healthier growth and a happier company and a happier team. And that's kind of like the latest version of the company is how do we build a happy organization of people who would like to stick around for a long time and, and grow the company that way. I think consumers, and you know, and, and you could even argue like this isn't, uh, you know, a consumer buying like a $3 app from the app store or even like a $50 video game or something like that. These are people who are running businesses. So they sort of get it. I think people are getting more conditioned or at least I hope so to the, to this whole application process as you've, as you've put it and more so like, Hey, we only want to do business if it makes sense for both of us. Like we're not Walmart. You're not going to come in, put your you know forearm on the shelf, and just start ripping things off the shelf and saying, "I want it. I want the best price on this." Like you're not going to do that to us, and we don't want to build a product that you know would sort of cater to that same kind of experience. Um, you know, and I know as my day job at at Pagely, we, we sort of do the same thing, right? Like our entry point is 500 bucks a month, which is like ludicrous in the, you know, manage WordPress world, right. uh, manage hosting WordPress world, because, you know, we have so many competitors out there that say they do manage WordPress hosting for 30 bucks a month. Right. And it's, it's just a totally different experience. And those types of customers are best served over there. Like you are looking for a different experience and you're looking for a different culture fit when you come to Pagely. And, and that's what my job is as a salesperson to really make sure that I'm not there to, you know, Again, I'm a former car salesman, you know, <laughs> but I'm not selling like that when I'm on the phone with folks anymore. Um, you know, that my job is to just make sure that there's a fit for both of us. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, like you said, it's just, it's, it's a sucks. It sucks for both people because they've wasted time and you've wasted time, you know, and, and burned people out from your own staff. Um, here's the, here's, here's the greedy, the greedy portion of every podcaster's podcast is when they want to find out how their guest does something. And I'm interested to unlock how you do your enterprise sales calls, right? Because that's what I do, right? That's, that's my, that's my mm -hmm. day job. Like what's your approach to that book a call? Do you demo the software? Is it this back and forth legal contracts? Like what does that whole process look like? So it, it starts well before they, well before they make contact the the price being high is a signal to larger merchants that we can handle them and we're used to handling them and we know what they need and we're the right choice for them so it, it goes all the way to the positioning and the pricing and the fact that you do need to talk to someone it, it starts there and it establishes a position uh, of our company not being software we, we are a company of people. We use software to help you achieve something, but this isn't a product. This is a company and a service that goes with it. Uh, and so a lot of people have no interest in that. They do not want to talk to you. Don't force me to go into a Zoom call with you for half an hour just so I can try your software. Just give me the freaking sign-up link. 
And to those people, we say, here's a link to our competitor and we wish you the best of luck. You'll be happier this way. But the people who uh, are enterprise and are used to a different buying process are actually attracted to that. They say, yes, I do want to talk to someone first and I do want to see the software before I even consider a, a free trial. I'm not just going to like take this crazy chance on your checkout when we do you know, $100,000 a day in revenue. Yeah. And so this is their so, job so, right. on, on the line. Never mind Absolutely. the business. It's their job, right? Absolutely. And so maybe it's CEO directed and hey, I'm interested in checking this out. Go take a look. But it's not the CEO on the call or, or doing the research or setting up the demo. And so the enterprise sales process starts all the way in the positioning and in the initial contact process. And then once we get into that demo, the only thing we care about is the relationship. What are you trying to accomplish? Can we help with that? And then it's just a matching process. Do you have the strategy that matches with our software that can help enable that strategy? Do you have the right culture internally that we enjoy talking to each other? And this isn't some weird contentious relationship that no one is interested in. Is it a financial fit? There's a great article by Lincoln Murphy, you know, the, the customer success guru, uh, about, about qualification fit. And so we used to look at qualification as a revenue marker. If you make over $100,000 a month, you're a good fit for our software. Uh, that this, the, the demo process and uh, Lincoln Murphy's blog post uh, and just that research that went around focusing on that piece of things in the process really helped enrich uh, the, the view on what qualification is. It's not just revenue. It's also cultural and it's also technical. Do we have the integrations that you need? So now our, our view on whether or not you're a fit is much, much better. It's not just, do you make X? Because that was attracting a lot of the wrong people. There's a lot of jerks out there that make 500 grand a month in their e-commerce store and we have no interest in working with them. And, and so once we establish the, the, the whole conversation is just, is this a fit? And just being very, very honest. Yes, we can do that. No, we can't do that. Yes, that's on our roadmap. No, that's not on our roadmap. And, uh, and the decision to move forward, a lot of that, we, we don't push for. We, we let them decide. So there, there's something about the positioning and the process and all this stuff. And then the, the quality of the people internally here that you're talking to, it really takes a very, very non-sales approach. It's not like, you know, X number of people that I need to close. It's that that is removed entirely from, from the team. And yeah, so it's it kind like of just consul- happens It's consultation natural. almost. It, it's almost yes, like a consultation. Yes, it's consultative selling, and we're yeah. just totally okay with saying no to someone if it, if it's a bad fit, and we make saying no to us uh, very easy because if you don't think it's a good fit, then like do do not start gambling your business on a new checkout page, and and that right, so that that leads to that leads to really good relationships, and that leads to um, a lot of trust, and it leads to a lot of flexibility and a lot of uh, forgiveness when we need it. Um, yeah, and are you still lead, are you still leading up the sales calls yourself, or have you sort of corralled a team together to do presentation? We don't have a sales team. We have we have two uh, people in success, Katie and Emily, and they do all of it and just do a dynamite job. Just so I I they only ask me to come in if it's actually going to be helpful, uh, which is which is rare. Uh, and so right now we're talking to a very large merchant, you know, $100 million a year plus. Uh, I have not been involved. I have not talked to them at all. Uh, but soon there, our success team will suggest that that myself and someone on the success team fly down to meet them in LA in their office. So I'm, I'm just a tool for them. You will help me close this deal. I pull you in. Otherwise, don't, you know, kind of st- stay out of my hair. Yeah, and and so e- e- even even that though you can see, like who's doing the sa- the sales? It's the success team that's responsible for onboarding and for them actually being successful. So you're talking to the team that's responsible for you to be successfully onboarded. Why would they kid you? Their incentive is not to just maximize the number of people coming into the system. Their incentive is to maximize the number of people that will go through the system successfully. And when do you when do you? make that mark when you make that delineation is it like 90 days 60 days 120 days like when they've actually you've actually deemed them as successful onboarding that's what when they're processing revenue actively 
Oh, okay. Right. Just so, straight away. Right. Well, that, that can take anywhere between a week to six months. So, so our large merchants that pay us like 10 grand a month and, and, and more, they're contacting us six months before making the move to Shopify. And they're saying, we want to move to Shopify, but we need a customizable checkout and we want post-purchase upsells. And so we, we, that conversation is months and months and months ahead of time. And so we don't count them really as onboarded either. If they signed a contract, that's one thing. Or they're actively processing revenue. That means they've got everything they need, the tracking in place, integrations in place, and then we've achieved actual onboarding success. So what's the future? Any, uh, any new big pivots you can, you can break here on, on the Matt Report before we sign off? Any new major updates? Uh, yeah. You're I think about it. You're thinking about it. <laughs> look, look. This is, uh, I think all of these podcasts, I know for me, it's like an iceberg, you know, you, you yep. see that you see 20%, but the deep dark stuff is really hidden. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh yeah. It's just the nature of it. It, it has to be. Yep. Um, but the, the big thing that I can say is that we will be going beyond the Shopify platform, uh, in early 2020. So we'll be moving over to big commerce and that will, again, transform the company from a Shopify app to an e-commerce tool uh, that works with, with, with multiple platforms. Nice. You can't put all your eggs on one platform, as they say. Th that's how it goes. <laughs> Jordan Gall, where can folks find you to say thanks? Uh, at Jordan Gall on Twitter, Bootstrap Web for the podcast, Carthook for the business. And I just want to say thank you very much for having me on. It's been fun letting me uh, kind of talk about this stuff. I hope it's been helpful. It has been. Are you going to go to MicroConf in April? Absolutely. I'm so excited that it's not in Vegas. I mean, I, I would go anyway, and I've gone every year uh, for the past five, six years or so, but I'm really excited for a new city that matches much more closely with the ethos of the actual you know, group of people that are going to be there. Yeah, I'm going to try to convince my wife. It's in April, so uh, it's right around my birthday, but we just had our third baby a couple months Ooh, ago, congrats. so it's still going to be tough. It's still going to be tough to leave them, that's, but we'll try. That's tough. Yeah. Well, yeah. congrats. All right, congrats everybody else. Baby. And I, ho I hope to see you in MicroConf. Yeah, man, for sure. Thanks a lot. Uh, everyone else, mattreport.com. Mattreport.com slash subscribe to join that mailing list. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes. We are the highest rated WordPress entrepreneur podcast on the web and beyond, hopefully, in 2020, talking to more SaaS companies like Jordan's Carthook. We'll see you in the next episode.